Welcome to Tell Us About It, Victim Research Convos, a podcast from the Center for Victim Research with support from the Office for Victims of Crime. On each episode of Tell Us About It, we talk to researchers and practitioners about their work, the tools being built for use in the field, and how we can work together to build an evidence base for victim services. Today, we're talking with Po Chen, Executive Director of Youth Heartline, and Dr. Holly Scheib of Sage Consulting. Together, they form SPIRIT, supporting protection, integration, and resources in tribes. Holly and Poe, welcome. And can I ask you to each introduce yourself and give a sentence or two about your background? Sure. Um, I'm Holly Scheib. I'm a global health and community resilience consultant. And my background includes research associate professor positions at Tulane and George Washington universities and consulting experiences with universities and NGOs in the humanitarian context all over the world. I'm currently full-time as president of Sage Consulting, where we work to support technical capacity building in communities and organizations. And I'm Po Chen. Thank you for having us. Um, As you mentioned, I am executive director of Youth Heartline, which is a child advocacy nonprofit in Taos, New Mexico. Our mission is to make life safer and better for vulnerable children and their families in our community. Uh, We are the only nonprofit in our region to focus on serving children who have suffered abuse or neglect. And each year we provide essential services to over 250 children, youth and adults. So SPIRIT stands for Supporting Protection, Integration and Resources in Tribes. And uh, it was created based on my experience uh, being executive director in Youth Heartline and working with Taos Pueblo. There have been a number of sort of issues that have come up regarding the interface of tribal child welfare and state and federal child welfare laws and practices. And that's been a theme over the five years that I've been at Youth Heartline in the executive director position. And um, sort of, you know, when the opportunity arose to sort of pursue something uh, more permanent or more intentional, I gave uh, my friend Holly a call and asked if she wanted to work with me. And out of that, Spirit uh, was born. Great. So Holly and Poe, Spirit was funded by the Center for Victim Research to help you all undertake a partnership project out with Taos Pueblo. Can you tell us briefly about your fellowship project and what you were trying to do? Absolutely. So uh, as I mentioned, Spirit came out of years long of engagement with Tas Pueblo and experiencing some of the difficulties. And the literature is rife with a lot of statistics and research talking about how Native children are overrepresented in the foster care system. They have typically much worse than average uh, health outcomes and life outcomes. And we were just looking to see if there was a way to actually address this, if we could research it, because there didn't seem to be a clear reason why this was uh, the case, and if so, what to do about it. So really, the genesis of Spirit happened about two years ago uh, around a funding opportunity offered by the Administration of Children and Families under the Children's Bureau. Um, and looking through that, you know, it, it was just, it just sort of came across my desk when we were looking for grant opportunities and the the grant opportunity sort of highlighted the need and value of participatory methods and i had met holly you know personally through personal connections a couple of years prior and so we've had discussions but never really had an opportunity to, opportunity to work together but i you know this seemed the perfect opportunity so i gave her a call and in developing that grant, that formed the basis of what's happening with the fellowship. Um, so in a lot of ways, there are a lot of moving parts. Spirit sort of was created for a different grant opportunity, but the fellowship really sort of materialized sort of later that year. And since we were just starting to get this off the ground, and because the fellowship was really explicit in wanting to support like initial budding partnerships, that seemed like a really great opportunity. And so we applied and we're so tickled that we were we received that support. Well, we've been so pleased to work with you. Now, we hear time and again that successful participatory research is really determined by the level of trust between the community and the researchers and the strength of that relationship. So, Poe and Holly, can you tell us what what sort of trust building or relationship building uh, did you do in this instance? Did you 
go into this project with a level of trust already established between you and the community, or did you have to start from zero? Well, thank you for that question, and I would absolutely agree that uh, trust is critical for participatory research, for successful participatory research. And I should clarify that our project isn't just a partnership between Holly and me or between SAGE and Youth Heartline, but between three entities, SAGE Consulting, Youth Heartline, and Taos Pueblo. Um, and the SPIRIT program, uh, one of the key components of it was building trust across all three of the partners, so creating a trilateral relationship. And there are different types of trust and different trust processes and different trust building activities that need to occur between each two partner group in that trilateral relationship. So specifically, we have one type of trust between Youth Heartline and Taos Pueblo, another type between Sage and Youth Heartline, and a third type between Sage and Taos Pueblo. So together, all of this sort of potentially builds a fourth type of trust that in the overall project. So for the purpose of discussion, let's actually focus on those three uh, individual trust relationships. So I'll talk a little bit about Youth Heartline's trust relationship with Taos Pueblo, which is based on years of collaborative service delivery, our shared geography. And I should point out that Although Taos Pueblo is a sovereign tribe, it is very much enmeshed in the greater Taos community. It's not remote. You can walk and be on tribal land. And so it's very, it's very connected that way. And we've also developed a program in partnership together. And so this was accomplished through years of active listening, committed partnership, and meaningful collaboration. So building on what Poe has said, I'll talk a little bit about the trust relationship between Youth Heartline and SAGE. So as Poe said, we came into this as friends, and our personal relationship is a foundation in this, which I think helps set a strong positive tone in all of our varied trust relationships in this project. Um, so between the two of us, between SAGE and Youth Heartline, we uh, were first were thought partners, and we're thought partners in, in how we approach Trust Pueblo, meaning that together we work to discuss activities, we think through all of the different relationships we have with the Pueblo and members of the Pueblo. And together, we reflect on the history of Taos Pueblo. And part of that is my uh, that I, I'm able to understand Poe's experiences and his lessons learned with prior work, and that we're able to bring that into our ongoing experiences and discuss it and continue to develop lessons learned through that. And all of this builds our trust in each other. And it's from all of those different types of relationships between us that we're able to work together to present a cohesive content um, when we work with the Pueblo. So we present ourselves as distinct entities, but also as a unit together um, when we work with the Pueblo. In terms of Sage and Taos Pueblo, that was a separate form of trust that we had to build. So I had entree from Poe and by virtue of his work and relationships, but then also had to develop my own relationships with members of the tribe and communities within the tribe. Um, Poe's background is my known touchstone. So even as we do workshops and I lead as co as, um, as primary facilitator, Poe is still physically there, which shows, um, shows our relationship and his commitment to me and his partnership with me in this. The fact that we represent these different and distinct bodies is really a model of partnership that we showed at Taos Pueblo and sets the stage for how we partner with them. Um, in terms of my trust building with the tribe, I use Patricia McGuire's work a lot in my own. And in her writing of theory and praxis, she talks a lot about just enough trust uh, working with tribal communities. And I find this informs my practice. So we work with honesty. We operate at a high level of self-awareness. Uh, we're very, very clear on intent and work hard to articulate the reasons for the work and what each party involved seeks to gain. And so, you know, part of this too is that we're clear that we'll never ever understand the experiences of the Taos Pueblo community. So we have to find an in-between point to trust each other. And that's really what we're working for with just enough trust. So the workshops we design are informed by all of these things and influence what participatory techniques are used and how we set the stage for their use. Great. Poe, can you remind us what types of information gathering activities were part of this partnership project? So information gathering uh, really occurred in several stages. So there are two levels of, of, of the work that we're doing through through spirit and the fellowship. The first layer is that we're interested in 
in many ways, sort of like intervention science, sort of how do we work collaboratively and collaboratively intervene in underserved and vulnerable communities? How do we partner with them? How do we be good partners and actually lead to lasting results? And the second layer, which is layer that does not belong to us, this data, but instead to the community itself, is information generated around, for instance, tribal priorities, uh, their cultural values, and how they want to implement that and how they want to develop indicators around child well-being. Poe, can you tell us briefly about your fellowship project? What specifically were you all trying to do? Through the construction of SPIRIT, we identified that there are uh, a lot of questions that we wanted to answer about, specifically about tribal child well-being. And the fellowship offered a great opportunity to begin this work. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, SPIRIT came out of a multi-year engagement with Taos Pueblo, and it developed around uh, a different grant opportunity, which we ended up not receiving. But the fellowship allowed us to take uh, that initial first step. And so we scaled back our original large multi-year uh, vision into something that could be accomplished in the nine months of the fellowship. The question that we were trying to answer at a fundamental level that's gonna set the baseline for future work, we hope, is identifying and describing what a thriving child looks like in the context of Taos Pueblo life, both culturally and on an everyday basis as uh, they integrate within the wider sort of state and local community. So in order to do this, we worked hard to convene two meetings with stakeholders. The first one uh, with uh, people who work in fields touching child welfare, so tribal court, social services, community health and services. And the second one with a group of youth to get their input because in the past, what we, what Holly and I identified as stumbling blocks for previous research projects sort of seeking to understand this is that a lot of that information was not actually solicited. It's difficult to talk about what needs to happen in terms of abuse and neglect when we don't have a clear idea of what is the target, what is a thriving child. Right, I understand. That's a great focus to have, and I think a lot of people skip that step. So when you two uh, worked with the Taos Pueblo community to convene this first stakeholder meeting, and we've talked about the, uh, the need to build trust, did you go into this meeting with the trust already built and, and feeling like now you can just jump into the work, or did you continue to incorporate trust building as you started the actual meeting with the stakeholders? Well, that's a really good question. I think that trust building doesn't ever really stop. You know, it's, I find it interesting that in work environments, we talk about trust building, trust building exercises. We have this whole vocabulary about it, but it's almost completely absent in our own personal lives uh, with individual relationships. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've never heard anyone say that they were scheduling trust building time with their spouse. But even with our own interpersonal relationships, we build trust all the time. We do this by being available, by being good listeners, and by following through on what we say we're going to do. So institutional trust building, like between you know, work entities and agencies, it has a lot of the same features, but with additional things that are overlaid on top of that, right? Uh, I also find that it's really interesting that institutional trust building flows in really interesting ways. So when we started to pitch Spirit, um, we first brought it to uh, people at Taos Pueblo, whom I work with on a day-to-day -day basis, they saw the potential in it and offered to use their own trust networks to get us meetings with their supervisors. We repeated the process, so on and so forth, each time moving up the leadership hierarchy. And we were really serious about tailoring our presentations to the feedback that we received. So feedback prior to these presentations, during the presentations and afterwards, so that we could speak directly to the interests and needs. So we spoke to people higher and higher up, up the uh, leadership hierarchy until we spoke with the tribal administrator. And it's really at this point that um, there was an inflection point. You know, it was a watershed because after that, when we reached out to stakeholders for this meeting, we were granted a baseline level of trust due to our relationship with the tribal administrator and also the stakeholders relationship with the tribal administrator. So, however, having earned this with the tribal administrator, it still doesn't mean that trust building stops. 
Um, and I know that Holly will talk about the specific activities that are designed to build trust uh, during these stakeholder workshops um, a little bit later. So Holly, can you tell us what sorts of activities did you do at the meeting of stakeholders to really promote full engagement of the participants? Thank you. I'd love to tell you about this. So so it's building on uh, the foundation that Poe has described. Once we had approval for the fellowship, once we went through that really lengthy process of building our relationships with all of these different parts of the tribe, uh, we scheduled the first workshop with, um, with individuals who had direct experience, professional experience, parenting experience, et cetera, with tribal children. And we chose our activities very purposely for this. So the spirit process itself begins, as Poe said, with communities defining their vision for child well-being and then integrating this vision into child protection and child advocacy systems within the Tufts public community and with the various systems that interact with children from this community. So the first thing we needed to do was to be able to answer questions that had been raised about the complexity of the New Mexico child welfare system. So as Poe had said, that was his initial inspiration for the SPIRIT uh, project was to be able to come together and answer some of the questions that he was getting from many of his colleagues. So questions and confusions about the system from members of Taos Pueblo um, informed it, so we knew we needed to dedicate time and thought to making that process clear. Um, and also articulate how laws for Native children, so particularly the ICWA law, which is the Indian Child Welfare Act, how it works with local, state, and federal law. So on the very first day, we started our workshop here with Poe spending several hours presenting the various aspects of these laws and, and the ways that they impact tribal communities. So he actually walked through the local, state, and federal systems for child protection. Then uh, we turned that, that afternoon of that first day into exercises that would identify the core values and ideals the community has in terms of their children. And um, as our first workshop, again, was conducted with professionals, parents, caregivers, we needed to be careful that the process didn't turn into a referendum on what's currently not working. So we didn't want this to be something where people were commenting or thinking about the negative, which is a very easy place to slip to when you're doing any kind of visioning process. And instead, we needed to spend a lot of time focusing on how we create a positive vision and work from a perspective that is values-driven and, um, and based on, um, on people's uh, excitement and energy towards the positive things in their community. So um, to keep the process grounded, we used a tribal rubric. So specifically, we referenced four priority areas that Taos Pueblo had recently established. Um, and they established this via a resolution, which is tribal law. And this rubric of four tribal priorities were um, education, housing, economic development, and community health. And this provided a structure for our workshops, our processes, and exercises. Let me just follow up for a moment. I love the fact that you were um, trying to keep people focused on the vision and goals and not slipping into criticism because once the once criticism enters the room, people can become defensive and then it sort of shuts down the forward momentum or the, the openness in the room. Exactly. That's exactly right. We spent a lot of time working away from that, which is, which is actually a very difficult thing to do in a group process. So Holly, was there, were there any activities as part of this meeting that um, you'd like to highlight that really engaged people in a new way? Sure. Um, so we used a wide range of participatory engagement techniques, and they included things like collective drawing, creative multiplication, collective storytelling, word association, ranking activities, and quasi-statistics. And we used all of these interchangeably and built on them and repeated many of them over and over again, which means that participants actually get better at things as they move along, and the nature of the exercises can change and become uh, sort of more technically specific as it moves on. Um, the exact methods changed um, changed as the day went on. And we didn't necessarily define which exercises we'd use beforehand. So um, 
So I found that these methods work best when you've kind of got a toolbox and can choose which ones fits the needs of the community and the group at the time. Um, and we actually received positive feedback about all of the exercises we used. And I think it was less about this specific exercise and more about what happened when people saw how any of these techniques, these sort of creative techniques, quickly became actionable data points. So for, for example... We did a case study exercise that were, um, where we used case studies that from Poe's work and uh, created guided questions around the exercises that led participants naturally into a multi-level type analysis, like a Bronfenbrenner type approach that, um, that looks at policy, community, family, and individual perspectives for child well-being. And this came out of, um, of a creative process. Uh, we did collective drawings, and these are activities that require active and equal participation from all group members in a drawing exercise. And um, and we did storytelling based on those drawings, and those turned into mission statements. And when the group saw that they did these creative exercises and came up with you know very technical, multi-level visions and perspectives of child protection, or came up with very concrete mission statements and goal statements, their engagement and their trust in the process grew rapidly and became very quickly apparent. And you know what's notable about this process as a facilitator is that as a community scientist, I have a sense of what needs to happen and what the outcomes need to be for our data, but how the group gets there is a lot more flexible. And you know, Poe, I think, has some perspective on this too. Um, at least in the first workshop, he was seeing some of the activities for the first time and can talk a little bit about what he saw maybe in the, in the group as well. Yeah, absolutely. I want to sort of highlight on those case studies that you describe. So to, to describe it a little bit more fully, we do use these scenarios at Youth Heartline to train or supervise visitation staff. And uh, the workshop participants were split into two groups and each given a different one of these scenarios and uh, a different sheet of questions specific to those scenarios and guidelines for how to approach the case studies. So some of the questions were very specific, like, oh, do you feel that so-and-so in the scenario was being treated fairly? Uh, but others were focused on what kind of policies influenced the outcome and what kinds of different policies or changes to policy could have uh, led to a different or and perhaps better outcome. So then these two groups presented their answers to each other. And it turned out that virtually all of the policy ideas were identical between the two groups, despite having drastically different scenarios and worksheets. So, and you could see, you know, their expressions and uh, what they said, that this was having a very powerful impact, that this was a hands-on demonstration of the importance and wide-ranging effects of policy. So folks even said that they got chills at this point, and I think it had a lot to do with participants who were originally unable to attend uh, you know, the second day of the workshop, uh, deciding to make uh, difficult arrangements to show up. You know, I think that it was a huge step in sort of building trust in and enthusiasm in the process. Um, it was really useful for me as a practitioner, and it's a great cross-learning opportunity because although we use these scenarios pretty regularly to train staff in a specific way, working with Holly and seeing this in action, I'm now able to add an additional layer to these scenarios uh, that I'm already very familiar with and use them for training in a broader context. We can use it uh, for broader strategic planning purposes within my own organization. And I guess another another thing that I, you know that Holly mentioned to me which I think she should speak about um, a little bit, is uh, our experience of working with participants who didn't always feel as comfortable in English. Yes, we, uh, so we had many different age ranges in our, um, in our initial workshop, and particularly some of the elder members, as we did, um, for example, our, our drawing exercises, this is tapping into a different part of the brain. When you ask someone to draw something collectively, there's a different part of the brain that's engaged. And when, when participants went to try to describe drawings that either they made or other people made, they found themselves uh, reaching for sort of um, symbols and reaching for, uh, you know, language and phrases that weren't easily accessible in English. And, um, and we had a little bit of a hiccup. And what we realized very quickly was that people wanted to use Tewa language, their local language, and we began to encourage it. And this kind of opened a little bit of a floodgate. People were, weren't anticipating that they would be able to use their language and with, you know, English language facilitators. And, um, and we did a lot of work to show that one, that we were comfortable with it, 
and two, um, there was space for it. And I guess in three, we volunteered to leave if if there you know came a time where there was something that needed to be discussed that was inappropriate for us to hear. And although we were never asked to leave, I think that the fact that we were so open to allowing them the space and the time to explore things in their own ways, that it made this, the space safe. And it ended up that Tewa got spoken quite a bit in the, in the nature of the workshops over, over all of the days that we worked together. Um, and it, it helped the work move along faster. People felt very comfortable kind of pulling different Tewa phrases and, um, and ideals. And it, and, um, and it helped them sort of refine the kinds of goals and values that we were looking for in the work. Yeah. And I should mention that in the evaluations we received, particularly after this first workshop, uh, that more than one person pointed out and was appreciative of the fact that we did offer to leave uh, when asked. So it sounds like you had so many um, little things and parts of your activities that were really creating a safe space and uh, a place that people could fully express their ideas and really led to, it sounds like, some great um group thinking about what does a well child look like for this community? I think so. Now, a lot of communities, uh, particularly we have heard um, for Native American communities, they've suffered from what's called drive-by research or situations where researchers swoop in with a requirement to quote unquote engage the community and they collect some data and then they leave. And it's an open question whether people were fully engaged. How would you distinguish what you did in your project to what has unfortunately happened all too often in other communities? Yeah, and I think that is really sad that that is um, the, the, the standard um, experience of Native American communities in particular, but that it's shared across a lot of underserved communities in general. And I think... I'll ask Kali to speak more about this in the general sense, but specifically, I can talk uh, to the partnership that Youth Heartline has with House Pueblo, and I think that it's really just baked into the design and who we've picked to work with. Um, Youth Heartline has been and will continue to be a partner with House Pueblo. We're in the same geography and service community, and I know, even though there are no guarantees in life, but I really hope that Youth Heartline isn't going anywhere <laughs> anytime soon. Uh, I mean, if only because we're only in year two of a four-year lease. Yeah, and building on Poe's comments, you know, we've been honest from the start on our intentions and interests in working with Taos Pueblo. And as Poe said, he lives and works in Taos. His organization serves that community. So that's that's honest and real and something that we can we can talk about with them. And for me, you know, I... Poe and I are friends. We enjoy working together. And uh, for me as an individual, my professional passion is building capacity of communities. That's what I do. And um, to work with communities to identify their challenges, create solutions to address them, and then carry out those solutions. And then, and we've said from the start, as long as Taos Pueblo wants that kind of engagement, I'm eager to be a part of it and, and really am honored to be a part of it with them. And I think that our honesty in this process is why they've sought us out. And one of the things that's happened from the fellowship process is Taos Pueblo has hired Sage Consulting as a technical partner in the strategic planning for all of their tribal priorities. So this fellowship actually kicked off a much larger relationship that Poe and I have now with Taos Pueblo. And I honestly think that a lot of that is because we approach through this fellowship process as honest and open partners. Now, I know one of the issues that can come into play um, when doing this kind of research is who owns the data? Uh, how did you approach that question? Uh, the data is not ours. Um, we, and we, we negotiated this and talked about this uh, up front from the start and said, uh, you know, particularly because I, I, I do represent an academic background, and that is, um, those are relationships that can be dangerous for tribal communities. So we talked a little in the, in the beginning about, um, about how we felt very committed to the idea of data sovereignty and, um, and that anything that happened within within the workshops, all of that data belonged to the tribe and belonged to the participants to use however they saw fit. And that um, our ownership was about the process. So uh, Poe and I have presented, we presented at a conference this summer um, based on some of the early findings in the fellowship process. 
and talked about that um, that conference and presentation uh, with the community and said, you know, we're talking about the process. There's nothing about the data that um, that we're presenting on the data is yours. And we've continued to talk about that and talk about what that means. Um, the participants complete evaluations at the end of every day of the workshop. And those, um, that is really our data. So the conversation we have with them is that we are very interested in understanding the process, um, understanding the way that we work, um, the nature of our workshops, what works very well in our workshops, what we can do better, and that they can give us feedback on that because that is our science, the process, and that the data is theirs. I want to mention too, sort of piggybacking on what Holly is saying, is that data sovereignty uh, in a tribal context is something that is gaining quite a lot of support uh, within tribes. Um, right before our first stakeholder meeting, a large number of Taos Pueblo delegates, um, the so-called educational convocation delegation, um, participated in, I, I believe, like a three-day conference held in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, and one of the key components was data sovereignty. And although that was in the context of education, I believe that it was very inspiring for tribes and it sort of falls along uh, their general desire to move towards what's called self-governance. It was a bit of a kismet opportunity for us as they had just left this convocation. We did not know the context of this convocation. And, um, and then we came in and actually watched a video and talked about um, data sovereignty and had no idea that it was actually something that was core within this convocation. So I think there was a level of sort of kismet in the ways that we engage where we were, they sort of instantly saw us as a potential partner who would be in the right frame of mind to partner with them in a way that they understood as being respectful right off the bat. So there were multiple things we had going for us in this regard. Um, but I don't think we would have had any of those things had we not been oriented to thinking about um, how to negotiate ownership of different parts of the process and honest about our intentions. That's great. Now, you've talked a couple of times about having evaluation forms or what you heard following the meeting. Um, so generally, what sort of feedback did you hear uh, about this stakeholder meeting? I can tell that you feel it was successful. What were the indicators for that? Oh, absolutely. So uh, a couple indicators. We have both formal and informal indicators. Um, on the uh, on the formal side, we did solicit evaluation forms, and I'll describe some of the feedback that appeared on that. We asked them five questions, questions such as, you know, how did you feel? Um, was, was, was the process culturally sensitive? Was it culturally appropriate? Was it respectful? Um, what did you learn? That, those sorts of questions. But also informally, which we touched on a little bit in, you know, previous questions, you know, people who who originally, when they registered for the workshop, said that, well, they could only come for the first day, and then making the arrangements, which we understood to involve quite a bit of difficult scheduling shifting, to be available on the second one. Um, all, in, all told, our first workshop had 11 participants, and these 11 participants represented seven different roles within the tribe. So we had people who had a leadership position, who worked in administration, who were involved in the educational side, community health, tribal court, something called the priority team, which is tasked with moving forward the four tribal uh, priorities under resolution, as Holly described earlier, and also uh, a contingent of delegates that were sent to this educational convocation. So in addition to that, we would also just hear people expressing amazement. So for instance, when I mentioned that sort of case study at the end of uh, the case study exercise at the end of the first day of the workshop, it was very audible. People were telling, you know, telling us that this was exciting, that they were very energized about day two and uh, making arrangements that they could attend. All told, uh, the first workshop, um, the participants com contributed a combined 116 hours of work over the course of the two days. Um, and for the formal feedback, I, I've, I've taken the liberty of pulling a few sort of choice quotations, and I'll just read a couple of them. So one quote, I felt I had my voice heard, was mentally and physically shown how much impact my input made to my community. Uh, here's a second one, um, quote, it required a different way of thinking. It used a group process, everyone's participation. We built on ideas and a way of fine tuning to capture what we truly wanted to say. 
And I think one of the most powerful pieces of uh, evaluation that, that Holly and I received is this next statement, which is, quote, I learned I am capable to affect change, that I have the knowledge, training, and tools deep within myself to be an advocate for change. And that's a wonderful thing uh, for Holly and me, that, you know, that we are explicitly in this and Spirit is explicitly designed to build capacity of our partners. And to, to build off that, I think that the goal, the ultimate goal of participatory work is to um, work with communities to uncover what people know, but they didn't know they knew, and the power of what knowledge is, and to break down the hierarchy that um, that there's only certain types of knowledge that is privileged. And so that last comment, when, when, when we sat together, Paul and I reading these, and that when we found that last comment... Um, our initial thought was, this is it. This is exactly what we're working for here. And, and we, whatever we're doing is speaking directly to the ultimate goal of any kind of participatory process. So we were particularly excited by that feedback. Oh, that's just wonderful. Now, you mentioned that you did a second group as well with the youth. What was your experience there? So, so participants in the first workshops were, were so eager for more. They wanted us to replicate this activity with elders, with tribal leadership, with youth, et cetera, et cetera. And so upon conversation with the tribal administrator, we decided to carry out a second workshop with youth since spirit is about child well-being. Um, and the, the workshop itself happened a month after, about four weeks after the initial workshop. It happened over a day in June, so it was during the summer. And, um, and we did get data uh, relevant to the goals of the fellowship. Um, however, we learned things from this process that have influenced our work since then. So first, one of the things that we did, uh, we didn't meet with the youth before this workshop. So unlike all of the other processes where we, in it, we had had opportunities to talk to all different kinds of stakeholders, and they had some familiarity with us, some familiarity with how we worked. We were able to kind of prep people a little of what to expect. With the youth, we, they were completely new to us. Um, so we coordinated this with adults and with youth program coordinators. And some of those people coordinating were, were also unknown to us and had not participated in, um, in our prior workshop. So, so there was an added layer of not only of youth not being prepped for the experience, but the adults who were bringing them and coordinating them also not really knowing what this experience would be. Um, so in that sense, I was limited a little bit in my toolbox in terms of activities, and Poe and I really didn't know who to expect or what to expect or even a, a clear idea of the age ranges to expect. So we realized um, once we started working with them that um, having a meeting room with facilitators is is actually not the best way to engage with youth. Um, it's it's too much like a classroom experience, which is actually not the safest place for Native children. So had we had more insight into this, we could have we could have used more outside practices. We could have rethought the structure of the workshop to be outdoors and to involve photography or theater or music or things that were more relevant to their everyday lives. Um, so from this, we learned that it's really important for us to meet directly with potential participants before each workshop so that we can understand them and we can better meet their needs and speak to their experiences in the process. Ah, I see, Holly. That goes back to that earlier point that you made about having a number of tools in the toolbox and being prepared to be flexible on site or in the moment. And here, because you hadn't had that opportunity to do advanced work, you, you lost some of the ability to be, to be flexible. That's right. That's right. And I think that there's, there's, there's toolbox that are appropriate for, you know, indoor space and sort of classroom type facilitation, which is different than toolboxes that can be applied to, say, working outdoors or working, um, you know, working at alternative sites. And I think that had we had a little more exposure to different parts of the community and had, th and had been had opportunities really to get to know the youth that we would be working with, we could have better understood their needs. And so it, it showed us now, now as we go into meetings and we plan these workshops, um, everything that we do is, um, is precipitated by a series of meetings where we have interaction with the people that we're going to have in these meetings so that we can think very directly about what is going to be best for them and how we can best serve them when we, when we do these data collection and workshop activities. 
You know, one of the takeaways that I'm getting from this conversation is just how much time and thought you all had to invest to really be inclusive and to really be open to the engagement of the of the community. This was not something where you could just go in with a checklist, one, two, three, and get it done as long as you did all the right things. You just had to, you had to invest so much um, time and thought at every step of the process. Absolutely. And I think that we're lucky in the sense that Taos Pueblo has been a community that I've worked with for a number of years. And Holly can, I'd, I'd like Holly's sort of opinion on what it was like sort of walking into that relationship sort of brand new, because I can't remember that day anymore, really. But one of the things that's really clear to me, and I think this is also true for many underserved communities, is that there's nothing more powerful than seeing someone face-to-face and interacting with them on an individual level. So one of the lessons that we learn is that email is not a great way to get message out to build engagement. Phone calls are a little bit better, but really what knocks it out of the park is in-person, face-to-face conversations, usually bolstered by someone else at Taos Pueblo leveraging a trust network, whether that's from the tribal administrator or from my colleagues who work at health and community services. Um, It really just comes down to -to person-to-person relationships. There's Yes, there is an understanding that Sage Consulting is a thing and it's an entity and that Youth Heartline is a thing and that's an institution. But what, what it boils down to is that they have relationships with, with Holly. They have relationships with Poe. And if we were able to swap out different people still from our organizations, there would be a very marked sort of you know, change in the dynamic because the relationship is with Youth Heartline through me and their relationship with Sage is through Holly. I do remember those early days that, that Poe was talking about. And frankly, they were, um, it, was, it was a little frustrating and scary because um, you know, we would put a lot of planning into these meetings and then walk in and, and not even know if they were going to happen. Or, um, or, or find that there are changes. So we had thoughts about, you know, we, we thought we knew who was going to show up and then completely different people would show up or the times would change. And, you know, we learned quickly that there is this alternative um, kind of calendar that is used and things change on an instant. And if you want to work in that environment, you have to be able to adjust to that. And, you know, we're all people with with jobs and lives and all of these things going on, and we have calendars for a reason. So to to, to have to work in that kind of environment can be um, can be difficult. And we we just we had to sort of persevere through that. What we found was that we have to just be there. We have to show up and be there. And when we do that, we can move things along, but it takes not one of those just being there meetings. It takes multiple ones over multiple time because different people can show up at different times. And, uh, and just being available for those opportunities is very critical. And, um, and I, I appreciate, too, that Poe points out that we, we do have now these individual relationships. And anybody else that comes in has to develop that as well, that, um, that while the organizations, uh, while they are cognizant and will reference these organizations, um, it is our personal relationships that give our agencies entree. And that, um, and that is really part of, um, part of what working with Taos Pueblo means is, is taking the time to develop those kinds of relationships. And it gets easier. It does. And I think that we see that too, that in the beginning, it would be me sitting, you know, in the lobby of an office waiting for about four hours for a meeting because something came up with the tribal administrator that they needed to take. But as we've sort of collaborated more and built that relationship, we become more important too. Poe mentioned going and sitting and waiting outside offices. He's really not exaggerating. That's exactly what happened in multiple instances. And one of the things now is as we've been working with them more and more, they, uh, the, the community members, are offering to do more outreach on behalf of our shared work. 
So we're in the process right now of um, of trying to assemble a community forum, and um, and they're actually this this came out of the group. The group said, "Well, um, well, you know, let's let's take flyers, and we're going to use our voter outreach uh, canvassing of the community, and we're going to to um, you know take this next step." So as we give FaceTime, um, it's met with an enormous amount of effort and enthusiasm from the community itself. So any effort that we give, we get back for sure. But it definitely took time for us to build that and see that and have that foundation to work from. Mm. So, But your investment is really um, paying dividends now. Oh, absolutely. So just taking this conversation a bit broader, you've done such great work with this community and things are going strong. What do you see in the future for this type of work with other Native American communities or other areas of community-based participatory research? That's a great question. And, you know, I, I feel that any any scientist, practitioner, any community organization is very familiar with the need for reliable data that's relevant, actionable, and understandable. And there's a, a huge divide between community level practitioners and researchers. So, you know, those on the community level are often distrustful of evaluation and evaluators and of research and researchers because they feel it's not relevant to their lives. And then those on the research side are often uh, often undervalue or maybe even ignore qualitative or participatory research because they don't really see it as fitting into a, a positivist or post-positivist scientific method. And, and that's a narrow lens to, uh, from which to see the world and really, um, really creates a big divide between two groups that should, are, are ultimately speaking the same language and need to work together. And, and I see community-based participatory research bridging that gap. And I feel that bridging that gap is in the interest of all of us. No statistical process in the world can solve the problem of bad data. Um, and data often doesn't ask the right questions. It doesn't go deep enough. There's problems with representation. Um, it can be biased in so, so many ways. And the answer to all of those ultimately is about investing in communities themselves so that they find ways to tap into local knowledge and help create better platforms for understanding their communities through things like good data and good planning. And so, you know, if, if we want to understand victimization in Native communities or in any vulnerable communities, but particularly Native communities, which are sovereign people in our country, then we have to invest time in building the capacity of those communities to understand what data is and to see that their knowledge is valuable within it and then support them in using data in, way that in ways that informs and improves their lives. There's, otherwise, there's, there's no incentive for Native communities or, or any community to participate in data collection for the sake of data. There's no shortcut to it. There's no shortcut to good information. It takes engagement. It takes capacity building. The community needs to understand and be a part of the process. And, um, and it takes an honest and open uh, partnership to get there. So I think that Poe and I very much want to expand on what we started with Spirit. We believe in this process. We believe in the future of community-based participatory science as a way to not only build a solid foundation in child protection, but also increase the capacity of communities on a much larger scale to think about how information can be powerful and their information can change their lives. That's excellent. Poe, as a practitioner, anything you'd like to add to that? Sure, a couple things. Um, sort of on the more specific level, what's been really exciting about working with Task Pueblo, not only because it's in my own backyard and actually has deep ramifications for how to support all children, vulnerable children and their families in our community, because the, the intersection of tribal, local, state, and federal child welfare systems is not working so well. I mean, that's why... Th th that's the original genesis of spirit. But I also believe that such problems are not unique to Task Pueblo. They're not even unique to um, northern New Mexico. It's all around the state, and it's in places like Alaska and South Dakota. It's all over the place when there is that intersection of tribal communities with a very different set of histories and cultural understandings and practices that need to work in the boundaries of federal and state child welfare systems, which is really dispersed, right? Um, for instance, 
the Indian Child Welfare Act is this very broad uh, piece of legislation that controls virtually all child welfare children's courtrooms and governs what people are supposed to do. But enforcement has been a perennial problem. Uh, the law has been around since the 1970s, and yet we see that there are very prevalent um, non-compliance and non-implementing uh, courtrooms and uh, individuals. And that completely undercuts it because there isn't like an ICWA police, you know, in the federal government that will be sent that shows up with sirens blaring if people aren't um, meeting their obligations. And it's also a complicated law with many, many, many pages and new guidelines uh, being updated and submitted. And it also has a tough, you know, public relations life based on things that have happened in um, in, in the public consciousness in the past couple of years, uh, specifically the baby Veronica case. So what, I, what I'm really excited about with Spirit is that it sort of rebalances the scale of how that intersection of these multiple systems needs to work. Instead of putting all of the eggs into everyone needs to just get on board with like the federal and state systems, it's really exploring what's powerful and helpful and effective in these tribal communities because they are experts in a way that the federal government and the state and local communities just won't ever be. And so strengthening that aspect of that intersection, hopefully we can get to a more equal and functional sort of uh, intersecting child welfare system. Thank you for that. Holly, anything you'd like to add? No, I mean, your questions have been very thoughtful and it's exciting to be able to speak about this. Um, if, if anything, I would love to be able to just say thank you to the fellowship for the opportunity. It's not easy to find support for these kinds of intensely community-focused approaches, and it's rare to find one with the kind of flexibility and collegial support that we found in the fellowship, and we're just really thankful to be part of the process. Holly and Poe, I want to thank you so much for the time that you've spent with us today. You've given us so much to think about how to be truly inclusive as we gather information from our community stakeholders and give them the tools that they need to do this work on their own. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tell Us About It. If there are research and practice experts you'd like us to interview or tools from the field you'd like us to discuss on this podcast, email us at podcast at victimresearch.org. Tell Us About It is a production of the Center for Victim Research, funded by the Office for Victims of Crimes Vision 21 Initiative through Cooperative Agreement Number 2016-XV-GXK006. The Office for Victims of Crime is part of the U.S. Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs. However, the points of view and opinions discussed on this podcast are those of the host and expert contributors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice.